0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad you're here. Today we have, I think, eight questions, if memories, my memory serves me. Yes, we have eight questions. And they are all so good, as always, as per usual. Um, If you are new, welcome. We're happy that you're here. If you're wondering where I gather these questions, you can go over to my YouTube channel that's called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's where I house all of my podcasts, one I do with my husband called Opinions That Don't Matter, and this one. And in the community tab on Sundays, I think right now it's around like noon, Central Standard Standard Time. That was a tongue twister for some reason. Central Standard Time I ask for your questions and you get to place them in there. And if there's a question that's close to yours, give it a thumbs up. Or if there's a little add on, you can add that in a comment below the question. Yeah. And I gather those on Mondays when I record this. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, Does anyone else feel more comfortable talking about their mental health struggles in their non native language? I'm relatively comfortable talking about my struggles with anxiety in English. However, in my native language, which is German, I am so uncomfortable. I uh, often shut down and just don't say anything. Maybe that's because every resource I use to educate myself about mental health was in English. But I think maybe it's also a weird kind of defense mechanism. Like I could hide behind a language barrier or it somehow feels a little bit less personal. Oh, good question. Yeah, good. Those are good thoughts. I don't even know the German word for anxiety because literally translated, it's fear. And that somehow just doesn't fit right for me. Yeah, because anxiety is not fear. It's actually uncontrollable worry. Okay, anyways. Also, there's no word for comfortable, which is my favorite word. I'd be interested in Katie's thoughts on this and how to get um, more at ease speaking about difficult subjects in my native language. All the best. And I'm going to say it wrong. I think it's like Lube Grusi from Germany. I forget how you say that funny squiggle B. I don't speak German. Apologies. Only word I know is Donka. <laughs> and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. So, okay. Now there was also another comment on this and I will get into that or actually two comments, but I will get into that after answering this first question. Now, the interesting thing about this is that one of my original followers, and I'm obviously not going to name any names, She was the same. She preferred, and it was actually German to English, which I find really funny, that she did not like it, didn't like therapy in German. And so she sought out an English-speaking therapist in Germany, which many people in the comments of this said is is very common. You can find an English-speaking therapist in Germany. So if any of you are in other countries, like let's say, you know, you speak Spanish primarily, but you prefer to do therapy in English or vice versa, there are therapists who speak multiple languages. Even my good friend, Rocio, speaks English and Spanish, both fluently. She even speaks Mandarin, uh, partially. Her wife uh, is Chinese, so she has, you know, she's almost trilingual. And she even is learning, she learned a little French because Sean speaks French, and I was like, wow. Anyway, so just seeking that out, I think, is is great because... At the beginning, it doesn't really matter what language we're speaking as long as we're able to process it and feeling like we're getting the help that we need. That's the goal, right? That's the most important thing. And so if that's in your non-native language, that's fine um, as long as we're able to get it out and work on it. Now, a lot of people ask if I felt that you needed to do it in your native language to somehow like break through a barrier and I guess my answer would have to do with whether or not you think this is like a defense mechanism or is it? Because a lot of people said that the English language in particular has a lot of different words that their language doesn't have, like saying that German doesn't, they don't even have like a word for anxiety. It's, it's technically like fear, which isn't the same, right? It doesn't line up um, or not having the word comfortable. Like there's a lot of different terms that might be necessary for you to be able to thoughtfully and thoroughly express yourself. And so if that's the case, I don't think it's necessary for you to process something in your native tongue. But for a lot of people in the comments, they were talking about how maybe this could be connected to like the fact that what happened to you happened in your native tongue and hearing words or sounds that are very similar to that can be incredibly triggering. And so you might like just prefer to not have to use those words. It's almost like it uh, separates us a little bit. And I think that that's obviously very natural and normal and makes total sense for me. It's, it's a lot of times we we just need that kind of, it's almost like the same way we need that um, distance. It's almost the same way with eating disorders, why we tell people to call it the eating disorder voice and separate it from you. That That separation can be really helpful and allow for more healing. Um, and so overall, I think this is incredibly common. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, and I talk about this in my book, Are You Okay? My first book, um, about one key component to like really to good therapy, to know you're seeing a good therapist is that they give you terms and words and help you put language to what you're feeling. And if your native tongue does not have language for that, like, again, not having a a word for anxiety that fits for you, then we're going to need to find another word. And if that word is in English, then that fits better, right? And so I don't really see, overall, I don't see any problem with this. But if it is a defense mechanism, almost like by speaking in the other language, we're kind of ignoring true feelings about something, or it allows us to pretend it happened to someone else. If if that gets in the way of us moving forward in our let's say trauma processing for instance then then i think there may be a component of your therapy that i would if i was your therapist where i would try to get you to speak in german about it little by little and that would be kind of part of that uh exposure therapy or you know, just part of your treatment overall. And so anyways, long story short, I don't think anything's wrong with it. But if it's impairing your ability to function and getting in the way of your treatment, then we may want to uh, push back against that and start trying to speak more in our native language about the things that happened. Now, The comments on this says, I think a good question would be, do we process it the same way talking about it in another language, even though it is easier? Or is it necessary to feel the heaviness of doing it in our mother tongue? I, From what I've learned over the years, because initially, like younger Katie, I would have said, like, I think it's necessary you need to feel the heaviness. No. The more I learn about, especially trauma therapy, and the more time I spent with my good friend, Dr. Alex Altman, and just doing research for my book, Traumatized, overall, I believe that we don't have to feel the heaviness of what happened to us again. We have to find language to put to it and be able to talk about it in our life, probably in both languages, without having it overwhelm us. Because the true goal of trauma therapy, I know this is going to sound weird, but isn't just as like to process the trauma. It's to get us to a place where it's not affecting our life anymore, because the goal is so that we can like go about our business doing what we want and not be hindered anymore. Right. And so if our symptoms are crippling anxiety, uh, that makes it so we can't go to social events, then if we can get ourselves to a place where we can do that, I don't care if we're doing it in English or German or French or, you know, Spanish or whatever. And so, yeah, so I don't think we have to feel the heaviness I think as long as we're able to move forward and it Im- improves our quality of life, I think that's what's important. And I think, honestly, if it's easier, start there first and see how it goes. See if it's beneficial. See if it is improving your life. Give that a chance first, especially because it's it's less overwhelming. Now, there was another question on this. and says, I wonder if this is something that we can use. Would it be beneficial to have a therapist who speaks our second language so that we can talk about things we struggle with? Um or talk about things we struggle to talk to in our mother tongue. I think that could definitely be like another tool, right? If we are trudging forward in therapy, sharing our story, and it's getting harder and harder in our mother tongue, then we're able to say, uh, I, okay, and we switch over into English or French or whatever the other language is. And then, you know, continue on in that. I think that can 100% be an amazing tool and an amazing, almost therapeutic technique to help keep you grounded and keep you moving through. And yeah, I think it's amazing. And it's just so interesting. Like I said, part of me, and I have so many thoughts, like part of me thinks it's that like separation. Part of me thinks that it might not trigger us because what happened to us happened in our mother tongue. Um, And part of me thinks part of it's just language and the fact that other other languages have different words for similar things, and they don't always fully line up. And especially, I think in our native language, like our mother tongue, the the first language we learn that we sp- speak the most, I think that we can have so many beliefs about certain words, or so many things we've been told over the years, and so that that can hinder us or cause more of a stigma potentially. It then, if it's done in another language that maybe doesn't feel so stigmatizing. Does that make sense? I hope so. But anyway, very interesting. I think this could definitely be a resource and I encourage all of you to use it. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Hey, Katie, can you please talk about how to treat anxiety when you are prone to making everything worse due to your anxiety? God, that snowball effect of anxiety, right? For example, when you're worried about performing badly, But then your anxiety makes you so dizzy that you do perform badly. Or when you're worried about not getting to a point, oh, not getting a point across on the phone, and then your anxiety makes you unable to speak and people just end up hanging up on you. I struggle with thinking positively about these events because, duh, the bad things happen. I already tried to calm myself down in the situation, but it isn't helping enough. And like, I'm exposing myself to the events, but then they tend to leave me feeling like my anxiety was justified. Okay. Okay. Lots of thoughts. Now, I feel like we're going to need more therapeutic work, meaning in therapy, not in real life. And I know that sucks because right now your anxiety is like fucking things up and you want to be at these events and you want to perform and you want to do well. And I get it. Find a therapist that does probably cognitive behavioral or CBT therapy. So find a therapist that does that. That tends to work best for anxiety. We could also have a therapist who does exposure therapy. A lot of CBT-based therapists will do exposure therapy. So just ask. But I think you're just doing too much too fast and we don't have enough resources. So you said you're trying to calm yourself down, but it like doesn't work. It's not enough. That means we don't have the right resources lined up and we're doing too much without those resources there. Does that make sense? So it's like, let's say I'm learning to swim. Now, I should probably start in the like shallow end where I can just kick my feet down, right? And I pop my head right above water. That's where I should probably start. And I should also make sure that maybe I have like water wings on, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning to swim, you put water wings on and also make sure that there's like an adult near me or a lifeguard, or I can reach to the edge of the pool while I go underwater and kick back up and and learn that I can come up and then practice my strokes, right? There's like a process when it comes to swimming so that you can feel okay in the water, being holding your breath and know that you can come up and, you know, all the things. And I think, um, random thought that just popped into my head. Some funny, uh, like anxiety-based response I have to going underwater is that I always have to blow air out of my nose. So I'm not very good at like holding my breath underwater because I, I can't, I feel like the water is going to somehow find its way up my schnozzaruni. And so I always, I mean, I'm sure right now I'm like, well, next time I go to our pool in our community, I'm going to see if I can do it. But I used to do that all the time. Like it was hard for me to go underwater without blowing air out. Funny, random fact. Okay. So overall, I think we need to find a therapist. We need to build up our resources. That's where I would start. I would, If it's possible, I would have you stop exposing yourself to stuff because we're kind of like making that anxiety muscle stronger. And it's not your fault. You were trying your best with the resources and tools that you had. And that's why professionals are there is to help us go farther, right? Do more and give you the tools and techniques and coping skills you're going to need so that you can, you know, push through and continue so that this doesn't bother you anymore. And so that's really, those are really my my thoughts and my goals for you. Work on those coping skills slash resources, meaning try some out as you feel your anxiety built, not in the moment when we're already like, it's too much, but like, just imagine, like close your eyes, imagine you're going to go perform and, then use that tool and see if it brings your anxiety down even just a tick like how quickly and how well does that coping skill or resource work coping skills can be things like fidget toys and a silly putty or they can be like calling a friend they can be like stomping our feet or shaking out right we talk about that like resetting a nervous system they can also be things like closing our eyes for a second and imagining that We're floating in an ocean and we can hear the waves, but everything's like muffled because our ears are below the water and we can feel the sun on our face, right? Put yourself in a very peaceful place. That can also be a resource and we have, we, it can help to have a place picked out where you go. Um, so building those up first is going to be key and then more slowly exposing ourselves so that we're like setting ourselves up for success and when we go to do the thing we're not proving our anxiety right anymore we're actually going to be able, be able to like stay present and overcome it. Cool? Now there were some comments on this and says to add to that I experienced that too and it often prevents me from doing something again. If I had a terrible experience doing X, often due to anxiety. I don't want to do X ever again. This seemed counterproductive. Any tips on how to use exposure in a better way, even if the event did not go great? Yes, again, I feel like it's kind of the same answer to the first is like building up those resources ahead of time. Now, obviously those events, you're not going to want to do again. You're not going to want to do whatever didn't go well. And so put those down when you talk to your therapist, put those down on your list. Like they call them your hierarchy, meaning like we're going from, the lowest anxiety producing thing, which could probably be like being at home by myself, right? Or with a loved one, depends, you know, depends on how your anxiety displays itself. So that would be like the lowest moving all the way up and maybe a 10 is one of those events that already didn't go great. Like we already tried that out and it didn't work. Put that up there and we'll build toward that as we use those better suited resources. I think there's this rush sometimes to like expose ourselves and calm ourselves down, but we don't really know how to calm ourselves down. It's because we don't practice them. And I know it sounds weird. We don't think to use our resources when we're not in crisis or when we don't feel overwhelmed. But I'm telling you, if you don't, you won't know if they're going to work. And so we're going to have to do some like visualizations in therapy or on our own at our home where we imagine going into a stressful situation. We feel it. Our breath, maybe our breath picks up. Our heart rate increases. My palms start to get sweaty. My mind starts to race. I start to breathe real shallow. I have to try it. Then I have to try it then because the cool thing about just visualizing it in your own house, just like I was saying in the water where I can kick my feet down because it's shallow and I can get above, you can open your eyes and you're back in your house in your calm and safe place. And so doing that little by little to make sure that your resources actually work is going to be key to your success so that we don't keep having these bad experiences. Otherwise, like I said to the first component of this question, we're just going to keep proving anxiety right and making that muscle or that anxiety voice even stronger. Now, there was another comment on this that another add on, I experience high amounts of anxiety all the time, but it's worse around people. So I'm trying to intentionally put myself in social situations in order to stretch myself. The problem is I always get way too anxious to be able to practice calming techniques, so I can't seem to make any progress. When I'm around people, regardless of the number of people or my relation to or opinion of them, I have an intense feeling the need to run for my life. There have been times when I even actually started physically backing away from a person mid-conversation, and I didn't even realize it until I was almost out the door. Then if I can, oh, if I can't physically escape the situation, I completely shut down mentally and I can't even think straight. I don't know how to prevent this since I can't control people in situations. Any advice would be super awesome. Thanks. I feel a full video coming on because I maybe, and I always like, I assume it's me. Maybe I haven't done a good job explaining coping skills and the fact that we have to practice them ahead of time. Because if you were, for the person who asked this part, the fact that you experience high amounts of anxiety, like all day, every day, you need to use your coping skills then. And we need to get you down from that. And possibly medication might be something that needs to be put on board as well. Because if we're already revved up, we shouldn't be adding on more. We're like, it's like that, uh, what we're doing what we're talking about is this window of tolerance or our resilient zone or whatever you want to call it right between fight and flight like this person i want to run away i got to like get the fuck out of the situation or freeze dissociation or shut down right we want to make that this window wider and the only way to do that is to work on those coping skills and those resources because that means that when someone comes and talks to us at an event if our window's like this we we go into fight, flight. And if we've been working on our resources and our coping skills, then that person comes to talk to us. And guess what? We can hang in it. We don't have to run away or back away. We don't have to shut down. Um, but we have to practice those. We have to get to a place where the tools that we have, we can use them in any situation. Um, that's why sometimes I'll tell people, if you start feeling it, like we have to get better also at, like noticing our level as it comes up. Right? What am I right now? I'm like a three, right? Or I'm a four. Ooh, I feel it creeping. We're moving into a six, right? Start to feel a little overwhelmed. That's a good time if we're, let's say we're at a party, you say, excuse me, I just have to run to the restroom really quick. We back away. We get out. We sit in maybe in a stall or maybe it's a single toilet. We lock the door. We breathe. We have a mantra we say. We maybe call a friend real quick. Maybe we do a full body shake. Maybe we just stomp our feet around. Whatever we do, we do that. Maybe we play with our hair. I've had a patient who loved to like, like oh, the tickling on the arm. There can be all sorts of different things that we can do to kind of help ourselves calm down. Use those things and make space for it. And so, if we can use them more early on, we'd stop having these like uh, anxiety-affirming experiences. And um, yeah, so the person who asked this question, I think the high amounts of anxiety that you're feeling already is something that we're going to have to work on before you put yourself in other situations. Now, I know life isn't perfect, and they don't always allow us to be like, well, I'm not ready yet. Um, In those cases, maybe you bring a safe person with you, someone who feels calming. Maybe you practice ahead of time with your therapist, and you have some tools that we're going to try out. It may not go well. It may go well. It's okay. We're just trying. It's practice, right? Or maybe we just do like what a lot of people do. You go to an event, you say hi to a couple of people and you just leave. You do the Irish goodbye. You just like leave without saying anything. Um, you know, we can do that too, just so that we don't overwhelm ourselves. So yeah, those are my thoughts. And part of me, like I said, feels like this needs to be a full video because I've done a disservice or I haven't told you enough or maybe clearly enough that we can't just write down coping skills. We have to practice them when we're not overwhelmed so that we know they work when we are. Now there, uh, let's see, there was one more question on top of this. It says, I would personally like to add one more thing. Like you've been talking about asking, yeah, if that happens, what then? Okay. And I'll explain that in a second if people don't know what that means. And while this could sometimes be useful, not managing a phone call, for example, it may mean I don't get an appointment with a doctor. And this could lead to me not getting treatment, which I think is a legitimate thing to not want to have happen if this is the case, what, what that tool they're talking about is, um, it's a, it's a CBT technique called downward arrow questioning. And essentially we're like playing, not playing something out, but we're trying to figure out like, okay, so let's say, um, that you think that your, uh, your sister's boyfriend doesn't like you. Okay. So what does that mean if he doesn't? Well, then he might say some bad things to my sister. I don't know. I, I, would, I wouldn't would want to be around him. Maybe I think he was judging me. Okay, so if we thought he was judging us or telling your sister shit about you, then then what? And we try to essentially get down to the root of where this is coming from, which usually is some kind of belief around, like, I'm not good enough. No one's ever going to like me or anything like that. And that's something that a therapist will kind of do with you. In this case, I don't think this, I wouldn't personally use that tool when it comes to, like, setting up an appointment with a doctor. I would set up like the the scenarios, like playing it out till the end. So I would say, best case scenario, worst case scenario, most likely scenario. See if that calms you down. And always do best case first because it's easy. Worst case next because it's also easier. And then most likely case last because that's going to take a little time for you your brain to like pump that out because it's used to always giving you worst case, and it's going to take a little extra effort. And it'll be the last one on your mind, and that is the most likely. You're being honest with yourself. Worst case, best case, most likely. That can really help. Um, and then practicing role play when we're making doing things like making an appointment or talking to someone for the first time. I even encourage my patients always when they're calling, because I don't know what it is about anxiety, but almost everybody has a problem with the phone, actually talking to someone on the phone or leaving a message. And the the anxiety that builds as it rings and we wonder if they're going to pick up is like, we don't want to do it. So write down a few bullet points or even script out your whole conversation. I don't care if it sounds a little weird on the other end because that's not exactly how they asked it, but at least you have certain things you can say to get your point across. That's fine. We'll, we'll get the gist. You'll get that appointment made. They'll understand at least what the problems are. So write some things out, fully script it, whatever you need to do, practice ahead of time. Um, those are ways that I would help you set yourself up for success when it comes to doing things like using the phone to make an appointment. Okay. Moving on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie, why do I miss my depressive and or suicidal thoughts when I don't feel them for a bit? When do I feel, or when I do feel these feelings, all I want is for them to pass. But when they do actually pass, I feel nostalgic and then I want them to come back. I honestly don't understand why I would want to, I could want to feel that way. Thanks for all you do, Katie. Of course, there were a ton of comments on this and I found this really interesting because my knee jerk, my knee jerk reaction is our depressive thoughts become comfortable because we're used to them and they know where they take us, right? And that for many of my patients, many members of our community have told me over the years that that's really why we can sometimes miss things like our depression or even, um, it's usually depression. Oddly enough, people don't usually miss their anxiety, but people can miss their self-injury or their eating disorders. And that can happen because we're used to, we know where that takes us and we're comfortable with it. But it also can have to do with the fact that it's a coping skill. And we can feel like even the healthy ones that we've come up with just aren't as good. And we can miss the way that those things used to make us feel, even though we know it's not good for us. And that's all kind of part of the recovery process. So I just want to put that out there too, in case you're um, struggling with those other, you know, not depression, but those other issues. Now, that can be part of why depression or suicidal thoughts hang around. Like I said, the fact that it's comfortable, and we know where it takes us. And feeling good, we can think like, Oh, that we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? The anxiety they can build because we're like, "Well, I don't really deserve to be happy." So wait, when when huh? we can feel really panicked, like we're it's never, you know, um, we don't know how long it's going to last, and we're worried it's going to, you know, and so we can just prefer to already be in the the hole, right, in the shitty place because we know what that's like, and then we don't have to worry about anything happening to drop us back in when we're not ready. Some of it can be from that, but a lot of people in the comments were saying that uh, some of that stuff, but a few people talked about how they were better able to create when they were in that depressive or suicidal space. Meaning, like, let's say I write music or poetry or, um, I write books or any number of things, um, you know, making music or, creating digital art, any number of things that we can do, a lot of people in our community felt like their depression or suicidal thoughts made them better at it. And I have heard that. And part of me thinks, because I I used to, this is kind of silly to me, but it wasn't serious, I guess is why it's silly to me. I used to write poems all the time. It was like a teenage Katie thing. And it definitely coincided with more down or depressive episodes in my life. And I think part of me thinks that that's due to the fact that when we're in that space it's like we're so we feel everything so intensely all of the feelings are so strong and we can like wallow in it and i think in that wallowing sometimes beautiful creations can be made because they're so emotional and they're so because it can feel like we're like ripped open like so emotionally raw right or um vulnerable to other wounds that and even like mulling over things a lot because the rumination that comes along with depression can be pretty intense, that all of that can lend itself to putting out more emotional or more connected art. Does that make sense? And so I do think there is probably something there as well. But overall, I, I haven't had, I've had patients, I actually, I think there was even like an artist, uh, back in the day who shared how he could create only when he was bipolar. And even though he didn't really want to be manic again, because it came with some kind of, you know, some psychosis and some delusion, he missed it because he missed that creative part of him. And so I could see that. So there, there are a lot of different reasons. Just to sum it up, number one would be because it's comfortable and we know what to expect with it. Number two is that when we're not depressed, we are like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, wait, is this? I don't know. Uh, uh, right, we just almost can't even enjoy being happy. Oh, and another another one, a third could be like we don't believe that we deserve to be happy, so we can constantly be like shit talking ourselves, guilt tripping, have shame filled, spiraled thoughts because we're feeling good. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know. And then finally, we could it could connect us more clearly to our creative self and because it connects us more intensely to our emotion mind and our emotion self and remember emotion mind's not where we want to be because we can't make we often can't really make good decisions for ourselves. hence why depression makes it hard for us to like get out of bed and do anything because even if we want to it like removes that choice right because we're stuck in emotion mind and we're stuck in that depressive episode motivation uh clear thought just isn't Gonna work for us now. There was a comment on this that I had a classmate who struggled with something similar. However, her therapist's diagnosed her with psychotic depression. Hmm. Katie, can you weigh in? Um, if that's something that's similar or if it's a completely different thing? I know she's on medication now, but struggled with suicidal thoughts and behaviors as well as her depression. Now, bipolar. Okay, psychotic depression is when we are, and you might not, maybe don't know her full symptoms. Depression can have psychosis with it. We can get so deep into our depression that we have delusions or hallucinations. And that's what psychosis is, which is what we call psychotic, okay? Now, a delusion is a firmly held belief that firmly held belief could be that I just know that um I'm going to lose my job. I just know that you know, my girlfriend or boyfriend's going to break up with me. I just know that the CIA is trying to talk to me through my TV. You know, there can be any number of things. And hallucinations are when we hear and see or even feel things that aren't there. And those hallucinations can be tied to delusions or not, meaning that if I believe the CIA is talking to me through the TV, then I can actually hear things and piece things together to try to make it make sense to believe that they actually did, like I heard it. Does that make sense? Um, And so it's possible that your classmate had some delusions or hallucinations associated with her depression. Again, it's incredibly common. It is different than what we're talking about, like missing your depressive episode or wanting it back, that this would be more just that she might have, she she might have, I, I would hope they diagnosed her properly and she being been, you know, getting treated properly. I'd assume she heard or saw things that weren't there and had some firmly held beliefs that, you know, weren't, didn't make any sense essentially. And so I'd assume it's more than just her depression and suicidal thoughts. That would be my guess. You can't you, people don't just throw around that diagnosis very often. Okay, let's move on to question number four. Says, Hi, Katie. What can we do when we have trauma symptoms, but the living situation that we're in doesn't actually feel safe, and escaping it seems pretty much impossible? Among poverty and being part of a minority and having health issues, life just doesn't feel safe. I constantly worry that I might need money for repairs or health stuff that insurance doesn't pay, or that I will be treated badly by doctors, that my money will be taken away because I didn't manage to do the paperwork you've been talking about needing to be in a safe environment to process trauma, but I feel like I can never be safe. Um, I thought this was a great question. And part of, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Now, I don't know if you're still being traumatized in your living situation. That's more what I'm talking about is like, and it it's possible that you are, but look, I always want to talk this through. Okay. So hang with me for a minute here. Now, when we're constantly, like the example that I would give, let's say our parents are the ones that abused us and we still live with them. It's going to be really unsafe for us to try to process that trauma while we're still potentially around it and it's still happening. That's why trauma memories and trauma responses, flashbacks and all that stuff can sometimes go away for a while. If we're not, if our brain knows that it's not safe for us to I don't know. Dive into that or open that Pandora's box. It's gonna stuff it down, and I'm not saying it's healthy, but it's a survival tactic, and it's it's totally okay, right? There's a time and a place for everything, and that's why dissociations there. Honestly, most of us who are still in traumatizing situations will dissociate frequently, and that's part of our brain's way of being like, hey, what's going on is too much. I just need to remove us for a bit so we can survive this. And you know, you pat your nervous system and your brain on on the back and be like thank you so much for saving my bacon. But once we're able to get out of that abusive situation, that's what I mean by safe. It doesn't mean that we have to feel safe. What what I feel like you're experiencing is what I would call hypervigilance. Now, I don't know if where you live, because I can't tell through this question, but from where you live, if you're still being abused or if it's this hypervigilance about like, I'm going to need money for repairs. I have health issues and people aren't going to, you know, I'm in poverty. People aren't going to take me seriously or whatever. Um, Insurance isn't going to pay things and I'm going to be, you know, destitute. I don't, I'm not sure where it's coming from for you, but if what I'm, what I'm hypothesizing is correct that you're not, your home itself isn't abusive, but your situation is, is causing you to be hypervigilant. I believe that yes, you are, you would be able to in that situation to start working on your trauma and processing it because essentially what's happening, I talk about this in my book, traumatized. Um, you could probably pick up a copy at your local library if it's something that would interest you. But what happens is that trauma occurs. Okay. We have trauma, either one big event, a bunch of little events, doesn't really matter. We have PTSD. Now that PTSD starts out by saying these specific people in these specific scenarios. So let's say that my mom was the abusive one and she abused me um, at home and in the car. Okay. So any issue where another woman is driving me in a car or when I have to go see my mother or be back in that home, I'm triggered, I dissociate, I can't handle it, right? I'm really hypervigilant, I'm on edge. Now, trauma causes us to be hypervigilant. So not only do I feel hypervigilant in those situations, I start looking out into my environment outside of that house and being in a car where a woman's driving, like things that are directly tied to my abuse with my mom. No matter where I am, my trauma-triggered brain is constantly seeking, or not seeking, it's not seeking out threat, but it's its looking for it, right? It's like a heat-seeking missile for any kind of threat. Scanning the environment, scanning, 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 looking for anything that could be kind of off. And as our brain's like, oh, that's an older woman. She could be abusive. We can't be around her, right? Even though, let's say, we work with her. Or she's our teacher at school or something not safe, not safe. And if she tries to get close and tries to talk to us, boom, all right, we pull the ripcord dissociation or, um, you know, fight flight, we, we run away. So as that happens, and I hope I'm doing a good job explaining this, we run it, we encounter another trigger, even though it may or may not be a threat, right? It, it's it's the fact that we perceived it as a threat that's important. Now that we get threatened, and it pushes us into some kind of, you know, fight flight freeze, And now that's not safe either. So let's say this woman approached me at school. Now I don't want to go to school or I don't want to be in the bathroom in between classes by myself. I only want to be in groups, you know, or I prefer to be by myself, you know, whatever, whatever the scenario. And that pushes out that's now not safe. And slowly but surely, trauma tells us that more and more of our world isn't safe even though this is just perceived threat, we actually don't know if that woman was threatening us or not. We felt threatened because we're so hypervigilant. And that's what I wonder if, I wonder if that's what's happening here. I don't know, but I'm hypothesizing. And so anyways, long story short, um, our world can get really, really, really small as our trauma grows which is why it's important that we seek out a trauma therapist, a specialist, and we start working through it little by little. And that could be done probably a lot of it for you. If if what I'm hypothesizing is correct, a lot of it's going to be finding some ways to calm your system down. Uh, your therapist will probably have you bring in people to assist. It's like part of what they do with EMDR. It's part of the resourcing you find a protector, someone to come and protect you. You find, and when I say find someone, it can be like a symbol of something. It could be a real person in your life, or it could be, um, like one of my patients, her, her nurturer, you find a nurturer. Her nurturer was her dog. Um, and her protector was, uh, this big door she would imagine that she could lock and no one could penetrate it. Um, it could be things, people, places, stuff like that. Uh, you have to, I have a feeling your therapist will want you to work on that first so that we can, when we need to call on them, we can call on those protectors and those nurturers and those things that we're needing when we're feeling incredibly triggered and incredibly hypervigilant. And then once we have more resources and coping skills to go out and do the work in therapy, then we'll either do the EMDR or talk therapy all the while weaving in those resources. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And I hope that helps. And I hope I didn't get too off topic. But I think it's important for all of us to understand why trauma can make our world really small and why something that might not be actually threatening can feel like a very, very serious threat. Now, there's a comment on this as an, as an add-on. I am currently on a wait list for housing slash a rental, but there is currently a housing housing and rental shortage here in Australia, in the States too. I don't understand why we have a housing shortage. It started in COVID. It's crazy. Okay. Um, and particularly the town that I live in as everyone seems to be escaping the cities to come here. We have that same in the uh, the States also. Is it possible to start trauma work, even though I'm still living in an emotionally and mentally unsafe place? I also suffer from multiple health conditions and one in particular, the symptoms can be changed or can change daily, either in severity or they could swap and change, um, says FND. I'm not sure what FND stands for, um, but maybe no it's not Eller's danlos anyways it says, i i'm still heavily reliant on my family to get me to and from places but they're the ones that keep triggering me as they're the ones that emotionally and mentally abuse me is it even possible to change and start healing when you're still in and heavily reliant on the ones doing the trauma to you i i would say it's not it's not the best idea something that we could do is instead of processing the trauma is working on building that resilient zone meaning coping skills, resources, things that you can do to help you better manage the triggers. We could make your life a little bit more comfortable, but I, don't, I, from what I know and understand, and obviously there can be current research and things come out that could change this. I just am not privy to that at this time. I believe that it's not a good idea while we're constantly or currently being triggered to actually try to process that trauma. Because for anybody out there who's processing trauma, I hope you're like nodding your head an agreeance that when we do that work, we're so vulnerable to triggers as is, and we can feel kind of like ripped open and a little more, yeah, I guess vulnerable is the best word, but it's just kind of like we don't have our defenses up in the way that we might otherwise have them up. And it can make us more prone to being traumatized again. And since you're still in that situation, I just don't feel like it's emotionally safe for you. But I think there are things we can do to help you have more tools and resources so you don't feel so maybe helpless, you know? And so building up some coping skills. And I have my video, 25 coping skills that might help you get started. Okay. Another add-on, this is a final add-on here. This is as an add-on, I really hope this stays on topic, but how do we begin to feel safe when we have no reason to, oh, no reason. It says not to, but I'd assume we have no reason to feel safe. I've always traveled life alone, keeping everyone at arm's length. Even when I was asked by my therapist to bring a safe figure into therapy, I couldn't imagine anyone fake or real because I always uh, view everyone as unsafe. Even to rely on my therapist is hard. I know they're supposed to be safe, but the urge to put up walls is so hard um, to fight. And the alarm that you will always be hurt always goes off. So I guess the question... um, how do you begin to feel safe when you have no re oh, when you feel like there's no reason to feel safe? I think part of it it's little by little. I think the the struggle for everybody tends to be that we we assume certain things should be easy or we assume it's all or nothing. It's a hundred percent or it's zero percent. But I'm let's say that you trust Or rely on anybody like 0%, my goal wouldn't be for you to get to 100. My goal would be for you to get to like 5%. Like, what would that look like? And working in steps and layers. And part of it might even be like working with your therapist and that being the first safe or at least neutral place that we attempt. Um, But giving yourself the time and space to slowly allow people in because my guess is you've been hurt a lot, probably complex trauma. And so you're like, no one is safe, and anybody who pretends to help me isn't going to help me. Maybe you've had a bad experience with therapy. Um, I know there's a lot of shitty therapists out there, unfortunately. Whatever the case, I encourage you to slowly but surely um, maybe instead of maybe bring this up with your therapist and ask, say, hey, instead of me trying to figure out what a safe figure is, can we talk about like what? What neutral would look like so that I can slowly move into safety. Because I think the word safe can sometimes be triggering because we're like, well, if I'm safe, then my defenses are down and I'm going to get hurt because, like, fuck that. I don't want to do that. Right. Instead, let's look for, let's like seek out neutrality, seek out things that just aren't triggering. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just neutral. What would that look like? Let's focus on that. And I want you to describe to me how we would know things were neutral. Are there some people in your life that are neutral? You're like, oh, there's this lady I work with. I know some stuff about her and she knows a little bit about me, but not much. And she's pretty neutral. Seems fine. I don't get overwhelmed and I don't, you know, I don't like want to run away. And I also don't want to dissociate. I'm just like, hang, it's fine. Like, let's try to come up with those kinds of things and um, neutral actions like I've talked about in the past, like repetitive actions tend to be really soothing to our nervous system and kind of more neutral, like things like walking. But if we have to go walking outside, I know that can be triggering for some people. So if walking doesn't work, we can, um, we can color, we can fold uh, laundry, we can put dishes away. We can do things that are vacuuming. It's very repetitive, right? There are things that we can do. I know there's a lot of clean based things. For some reason, cleaning is just very repetitive. Um, finding some things that are neutral and exploring that with your therapist. I think that will probably be a better like, way to navigate this. Keep me posted, okay? Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering, why isn't there more information specifically on sibling sexual abuse? The little that I find, even... Um, They they even say that the info available is limited because it is such a taboo topic, but yet more common than many know. Yes, incredibly common. I was abused by my older brother and we were only a few years apart, but it went on for years and there was a lot out there on the effects from parents or uncles or grandparents. And there are similarities, but it's not really the same. Or at least it doesn't feel that way. We are both adults now and I hid it for many years, but just recently I started therapy to work through it. Good for you. He was someone that I trusted and idealized until he started doing what he did. He was also the primary babysitter. Oh, I'm so sorry. Our parents worked a lot and he was in charge and it was better to listen to Oh, just to listen to him or you were in trouble when mom and dad got home. I still have contact with him and struggle with wanting to hate him, but also don't know how if I want my family to know. Oh, don't know if I want my family to know. Sorry. I feel like I should be allowed to hate him. You are allowed. But I also know for him to be able to do the things he did, that he learned it from somewhere and is most likely a victim too. We'll get into this. I believe he deserves help and not hatred. And I I fear tearing my family apart. That's not on you. You didn't do anything, right? I also deal a lot with shame around what happened and also the stigma from most people today. Things that went on should never have happened between a brother and a sister and I feel at times that if I would have just been a oh if it, I would have been a stranger it would have been easier, not that it is ever easy that, or that there'd be less judgment. I would like to hear your thoughts on this topic and I know you have a child on child sexual abuse video but more specifically when it's siblings. Thank you for your videos Katie. I know there isn't much for questions here, so more on what the what effects do you see on the victim, whether similar or different. Now, it's like you read my mind because I was going to push everybody out to that child on child sexual abuse video because there there is still stuff in there that I think is important, especially the part where you said that he's most likely a victim too. That whole thought process applies to anyone who is involved in child on child sexual abuse or COCSA for short. Um, Because that's like saying, just hear me out. I like to run parallels of things like an analogy, because sometimes when when it's happened and we're like, but they were abused and they were victim, if we start using those words, it can be really hard for us to see out of it. But just imagine that if we apply that same belief system, that if someone was shot at, that that gives them a right to go and shoot other people that aren't even involved in it just because that happened to them first. Now I know you're like, Katie, that sounds crazy. That's a little, but that's the same application. That's the same belief. We're just applying it to two different scenarios. And I think we would all agree that just because something bad happens to you, that doesn't give you carte blanche to go out in the world and like mess with other people, right? That can help us better understand why a lot of people need to know the why right especially when it comes to abuse like why could you why would you do that how could you do that to someone and that helps answer those questions but it doesn't condone the behavior it doesn't say like well that's okay and just because someone else was harmed doesn't mean that you don't also get to feel pain does that make sense it's even like uh, shitty parents Let's say we have a really like an asshole of a parent. And we're like, well, you know, they're only treating me this way because that's how their parents treated them. Okay, they had a shitty upbringing too. Does that give them the right to give you a shitty upbringing and be an asshole? Mm, No. There's this thing called personal responsibility. And yes, I know we're talking about children. And you're like, but children can't be that responsible. What I'm saying is, just because he was harmed too, if he was, we don't even know, but most likely, just because he was harmed too doesn't make what happened to you any less valid. And it doesn't take away your right to feel how you feel about it. Okay. I just want you to hear that. Okay. So there's that. Now, when it comes to siblings, the biggest component that I've heard from, uh, I've had two, maybe three, maybe more actually, patients over the years abused by a sibling but we have a lot of members of our community who have too so it is incredibly common and that fear of tearing the family apart is the biggest roadblock and even an earlier member of our community molded over forever until she finally decided she wanted to press charges like it happened and like six years later she pressed charges or four years because she was still a minor even at the time after all that um and he was convicted But I have had uh, members of our community who went through that, went that route and they weren't convicted. And so, you know, if you want to go that route, know that that's completely up to you and that's your choice. But the, the tearing of the family, it's interesting. And I just, I'm just going to talk it out with you because these are just my thoughts, right? I know it's not a specific question about this, but this is where it gets different because it's a sibling and the responsibility is not yours to keep the family together because, at the it's like essentially we're going to keep the family together at the cost of our own i don't know sanity ability to engage i can't tell you how many of my patients that i've worked with don't engage with their families anymore i've had uh, patients emancipate themselves because mm-hmm. of what happened instead of tell the family what happened and you know and then they got help like 6 years later or something you know when they came to see me um Usually, because they have an eating disorder or something else going on, self injury, things like that, and so I, I struggle with that one because everybody's so different. But I guess my question would be, you know, um, do you truly believe that it's your responsibility to keep your family together? That there aren't other people that are responsible as well? And would knowing that your brother abused you really tear it apart? I know families can weather a lot of storms. And as long as there's direct communication, and maybe there's family therapy, or maybe, you know, you try to decide what your next best moves are. um, You know, I don't, I don't think it's on you to hold the family together. That's not your like cross to bear or your burden to bear. And what else? Let me just, I'm just I'm talking it out. So the effects that I see um, on victims. Okay, that's the question at the end here. Um, honestly, it's that family component, and it's the fact that we often have to continue to see them. Now, child-on-child sexual abuse—that's not always the case. It can be. Um, sometimes it can be like a cousin or someone else that's related to us. But um, I think that that family component is the biggest one. And then whether or not to press charges, and then it's but it's my brother or my you know uh, my sister or whatever. And we don't want to ruin their life, even though I have to fight back. I have to be tough, tough therapist talk where I'm like, but they ruined yours, right? You're having issues because of what they did to you. And I just want you to hear that because the thing that fucking sucks about abuse in general is that it erodes our self-confidence. It fills us with shame and guilt and embarrassment. And we think because that thing happened to us, because someone did something to us that we like are responsible for it and made a decision. You know, like, I can't tell you how many of my patients over the years have been like, but I went back and I was like, well, where were you supposed to go? That's where the inner child work I think is really key when it comes to healing from this, because sometimes we forget how little resources we have as children, right? We can forget just what options were available to us. Often nothing. We lived in the same house. We He was the babysitter. If we didn't obey him we got shit from mom and dad when we got home, right? So we had this belief as little us that like they would believe him over us because they did before when he said that we did that. You know what I mean? When we got in trouble for something and we didn't do it. Like consider a little you. I actually have an inner child workshop that I'll be um uh, launching at the end of July here in a couple, actually probably around this comes out, but it won't be going live until mid-August. I'm doing it two Fridays. It's two two-hour workshop. It's live, but if you're not able to attend live, you can always access the recordings later. Um, the live component just allows you to like chat and ask questions. So anyway, those are my thoughts. I hope some of that's helpful. Now there was a comment on this says, thank you for bringing this up. I was sexually abused and the person is living with me, but there's nothing I can do about it. I just don't understand why I still have sexual urges, quote unquote urges, when I'm around them. I'm terrified from what happened and I feel sick just thinking about it. So why am I almost turned on by them as well as triggered? I'm so scared to bring this up in session because I can't bring myself to talk about what happened very much. And I'm still hoping that somehow I'm making everything up. Sorry, I don't know if this makes sense. Thanks, Katie, for all that you do. And P.S. I've been very scared to ask this. Well, I'm really proud of you for speaking up. And asking the question. It's important that we talk about these things, right? There's no bad or inappropriate question to ask here. Um, Sexual urges and feeling turned on is a physiological response. Now, yes, in a loving, consensual, age-appropriate relationship, we can feel those things because of our emotional connection to the person and mentally we can be turned on. But when it comes to the physiological response, I've talked about this in the past, how Something that isn't discussed enough is how many people will orgasm when they're being abused. I know that you might have shuddered or been like, "Really?" Yes, our bodies—it's our bodies are wired to respond a certain way, and being turned on or uh, you know having sexual urges when we're around them is because that's the only—that's the person who sexualizes us, probably from a young age. I, I don't know how young the person was, but you know. Um, We've been abused by them. That's the only connection that we know. Sometimes we're even told, especially when we're kids, that like, this is what love is. And so we think, Oh, well, that's, I love them. So that must be how I feel. Right. And because that's usually also the only person that that stuff has ever been done to. And again, physiologically, sex can feel good that can be very complicated and very confusing. And again, it just layers on the shame, right? And that embarrassment and the, the guilt around the abuse, because the thing to always remember is that even if we went back, right, we're like, I don't know why I uh, even went back over there after they did this to me. Because remember, we don't always have a lot of resources when we're a kid, we don't always have options, or we don't, we, we're not adult us. We're not us at the age we are now. We were us back then, right? So just consider that, right? We don't have a lot of options. We might not even know how to utilize the options that we did have, okay? There's also the fact that um physiologically, it feels good just because that's how we're wired. We don't understand it, so we can't make sense of how we responded. There's just a lot that we have to offer ourselves as understanding as support instead of assuming that just because we went back or we've been turned on, that it means that we we enjoyed it, therefore, you know it must not be abuse or we participated, therefore, you know, it can't be abuse. No, no no, they we were not of an age to make those decisions, even if we went back. Even if sometimes we instigated the the sexual contact, we were not old enough to consent. Just keep that in mind. It's not appropriate. An adult or an older child, and a lot of times, even when it comes to child-on-child sexual abuse, um, I talked about this in the, the video, is that what gives that child more power isn't always age or size. It's the fact that they know about sex, and we don't. And that, you know, Children are naturally curious. And so just know that they don't always have to be older. Um, but But we are not of an age to offer consent. And so whatever happened to us is, by definition, abuse. Doesn't Again, none of that other stuff matters. I know our logic brain tries to, or it's actually not even our logic brain, but it's like between our logic brain and our shame brain, they get together and they're like, well, this is what happened. And you know, but I went back and da, 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 da. And so I'm to blame just as much as, mm -mm. don't let shame take what happened and turn it into your fault because I'm here to tell you it was not. Okay. You were not old enough to consent. And those urges are a physiological response to past abuse. And it sucks. And I've even had patients and members of our community who still love their abusers and hate that they're in prison or that they got in trouble for it or whatever. Um, just because someone harms us doesn't mean that we hate them. Like the person that t- said, I want to hate them. Um, we have every right to if we if that's what we want. But often it's, too, it's more complicated than that. Sometimes it's the first person who ever told us they loved us. Often we're abused by someone who's supposed to be a caretaker or the only person who gave us attention as a kid, right? So yeah i could ramble on but let's stop there for now okay now there's another question it says is it possible that a child who does this with or two siblings particularly if they aren't aggressive in the way they engage they simply just do sexual things with siblings could have been at a developmental stage where they were exploring bodies especially their own and not have learned it from somewhere if so can you clarify the difference i have doubts that i'll show you mine if i um, if you show me yours, is the full extent of what curiosity might be at a normal um, every single age development in a child. But maybe I'm wrong. Can you explain the differences or the difference or what other behaviors might be normal beyond the I'll show you mine if you show me yours game that wouldn't require any external sources of learning? Again, this isn't a question meant to invalidate anyone who's, who has survived abuse. If you didn't want it, you didn't want it. If someone hurt you, they hurt you, period. It doesn't matter if they learned it somewhere or had malicious intent. You were still hurt and you were justified in your hurt. The questions that matter, in my view, on self-justification are not, did they mean to take advantage or cause harm or, or are they a bad person, but rather, have you always wanted exactly what happened to you to have happened? Because if not, you are justified that what happened was not okay, regardless of anything that has to do with the person who did what they did. I'm glad you're in, oh, in the person I'm glad you're in therapy together. Okay, so to answer this question, it's a little complicated. Now, um, the thing about uh, curiosity with kids is a lot of it is done personally. Like a lot of like uh, masturbation in children at some ages is is normal to like not not like. It's like we're exploring what what our body does. Especially little boys. Um, If you've ever babysat a little boy or changed a a boy's diaper, a lot of times they'll play with themselves like while you're doing something else. They'll pee on you too, by the way, so be careful. Um, But there's a lot of that just like what is this down there? Um, Even just little babies before they even know what it is. And it's just personal exploration of your body. And that's fully healthy. And children can be very curious, want to touch each other's private parts. Um, That's why it's important to talk to your kids. There's a bo- a book I'm reading. I think it's called It's My Body. But all, all, I have to read it. I haven't gotten through all. I'm researching children's books about this kind of topic um, so that I have some things to refer, especially for inner child work, right? We have to talk to our inner child and what better way to do it than through children's books. So normal exploration like that, um, kind of a what is this, how does it work type of thing is very normal with kids when we're growing up. I think the way that it kind of becomes inappropriate and becomes more abusive is when it's actual sexual acts. Like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And again, this is not, it's not like I spend all my time researching, reading about this. It's incredibly common, child on child sexual abuse. But when it becomes sexual, like uh, oral sex, uh, any kind of penetration. That's where I feel like things have moved past what's normal curiosity and into something that could be damaging. And that is more abusive, meaning that probably the child who instigated it knows more about sex than the other child, whether it's because they've seen sexual acts done, they've been abused themselves by someone doing it to them, or they watch pornography of some form, either way they've been abused and in a sexually abusive situation. Um, And, again, that kind of goes back to the the power that the child has over the other child is their knowledge of sex. And I think we have to break down, like, because curiosity is like, what is this? What does it do? Right? That's kind of like how we're like, wait, what is this? How come I have this? How come you have that? Yours is different than mine. Da, 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 da. That's normal curiosity versus, try uh you know, any kind of attempted stimulation or any kind of penetration. I think all of that will be, in my mind, will be considered abusive and and definitely fall into that realm. Does that make sense? I hope that helps. Great question. Okay, let's move on to question number six. Says, hi, Katie. My question is about the whys of self-harm, I suppose. I remember coming across self-harm in a book and then in older schoolgirl scars, and I can still feel the click into place that happened for me. It would be years before I ever used self-harm, but what made it attractive before it was useful? I'm really struggling with self-harm still. And I've been thinking about the whys and where it all started. Maybe they're not important, but I'm just curious. Any thoughts on why we connect to an unhealthy coping skill before we even use it? Uh, It's so interesting. It's such a great question. I've heard this. So I have a few friends who are in recovery from drugs and alcohol and similar situations. Um, One person Said they were at a party when they were like 14 or something, and their older sibling had given them a beer and they were like, boom, it clicked. Like they just felt like this is the thing. Again, they're using it right away. So I know it's a little different than your scenario, but I just want to talk this out because these are it's very interesting. I've also had um patients of mine speak of this when it comes to self-injury, saying that or eating disorder behavior even, even saying that they saw it on TV and they were like, yes. Now people talk about having like an addictive personality. And I do believe that some of us, well, we know, we already know, are genetically more predisposed to struggle with addiction. It could be because someone in our family has it. Spoilers, almost everybody's family has at least an alcoholic in it. Hate to break the news to you. It's very rare for you to look back into someone's family tree and not have at least one. Um, So we're all kind of predisposed. And I think that uh, our struggles are like that. Like uh, my patients with eating disorders, they were. Uh, one in particular was being abused as a kid, and it had been really difficult for her. Um, another patient with self injury. Her her abuse was different. It was, it wasn't that she was abused. It's because her f- family life was really erratic, and like they had to move all the time, and she just never really felt settled. And so all those little T's added up, right? And so, anyways, I say all that to say that. Those coping skills spoke to to us in some way where we were like, yep, that's going to work for me. That's going to help. Um, for some people, it could be binge eating, right? I know this sounds really strange, but even if we're not engaging with it right away, it doesn't mean we're not struggling. We just didn't get to a point where we needed it. That doesn't mean, because even my friend who is now sober about that beer situation, they weren't an alcoholic. It's not like they started drinking right away. They were just like, yes, I like this. And they would do, I think it was like 16, so maybe two or three years later when they started to to really struggle. So I think we can, um, we can be exposed to some things. And if we're already predisposed or if we're already looking for a coping skill, and we're looking for some way to feel better it will click for us. And I know that seems like a very simplistic answer. And that's because I don't know like the neurology of it. And like, I'm not a geneticist. I know that there, are, it's like a 25% increase when we have it in our family. Um, also for, I know, you know, self-injury in particular is a coping skill. And so if we already have shit going on and we don't know how to process it, we're kind of looking out into our environment to be like, I don't know how to deal with this. Oh, I think that could work. And it was right. It you said it was years before you used it, but you knew it was there. It was a tool you put in your tool belt without realizing it. And no, that does not mean for anybody out there who's like, oh my God, well, I don't want to watch any content with eating disorders or addiction or self-injury. You're not going to like catch it. It's when we're looking for a coping skill and we find it and it could be a healthy one or it could be an unhealthy one. And in this case, it happened to be an unhealthy one. And I think it kind of It spoke to you in some way. It's the reason that it it helped you. Because the same way that I I always talk to people about, obviously, we don't want to self injure. And some people will say, well, why not? It's not hurting anybody but myself. But, like, do you, I guess my question is, do you, are you bothered by it? Do you feel like you have to hide it? Is it something you're ashamed of? Does it take up a lot of your time? Does it impair your ability to have other relationships or your ability to function in your life? Do you want to be, you know, married or i don't know in a relationship and still self-injuring those are all questions i ask people i don't know if any of that rings true for you but if you you know and also infection that i can really get into like cellulitis and things like that that i worry about but overall it's not something that's really helping because in the end you actually don't feel better the the kick that we get from things like that is very short-lived and we the coming down is usually the worst and it's like we got to do it all over again and so all in all, self-injury is done as a way to deal with something else when we don't have any other tools and resources. And if we're looking out into our environment, looking for tools and resources, and we see that one, we're like, mm, that one will do. And I think that's kind of where that comes from. Um, I hope that makes sense. Again, I don't, you know, I'm not a geneticist, so I'm sure there's even maybe more to it. But that's what I'm aware of. Now, a comment said, as an add-on, do you feel that the details about where on the body or what you use or how you do it are important as a therapist? My therapist never asked these questions, and I even wish that she did. Okay. But it was I was too ashamed to tell her without her asking. Makes sense. A lot of people feel that way. She made a point that she did not need to see my self-harm wounds, and then it was my responsibility if I was concerned about infection or anything Anything like that to see a doctor. She asked about the feelings and emotions that led to it and never seemed uncomfortable when talking about self harm in general, but she made a point to focus on the emotional triggers and that. I st- uh, says, still, I wish she'd pushed me on the rituals around it and I still feel uh, so much shame about it and could never just say it, you know? Totally. I always ask, I'm extremely nosy when it comes to this because of stuff like that, because I know there's so much shame in a lot of rituals and routines around self injury. And I think it's important because It can give us a way in because sometimes when I first start seeing patients who are struggling with self-injury, the thought of stopping is like, "Mm -mm, I couldn't, I could never, you know. And so I want to know more about it. And I want to find other ways into this ritual or to uh, the reasons why. And all that, it's all important. I also want to, I prefer if they feel comfortable. I don't always do this, but sometimes I will want to see my patients self-harm uh, scars and cuts to make sure that there aren't infections. And I will tell them, you know, you need to go to the doctor. And, or I've even told patients in the past, like, you can't come back in to see me until you see a doctor and I want to get a note from them or have them call me, you know, that kind of thing. Because like I said, cellulitis, infections, toxic shock, there's a ton of things that we can have, um, like blood infections and skin infections and things that need to be taken care of. And I don't, I feel... Maybe it's the way I was taught, but I feel like I'm responsible as well for that. So I want to make sure that you're getting taken care of. You're my patient. I want to make sure you're getting taken care of. Um, so I always ask those things, and I ask as much as they will. At, they'll give me, even if there's some reluctance. I might try back again, um, because a lot of people want to share it, be, even though it's like a it's it's hard to talk about. Because therapy is about the things that are hard to talk about. And I think unraveling that shame and the embarrassment around it and understanding why we're doing it and, and what it gives us. And sometimes I have my patients like write a love letter to their self injury, like, thank you so much. It's almost like a breakup letter is what it ends up kind of being. And we've done that in Eden's sort or of treatment centers too, where you, it's like a goodbye letter. Um, but I'll start off with a love letter and then I'll, then I'll have them, you know, write like a, a breakup letter and, and, you know, a final goodbye. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but for some people, it's really helpful to acknowledge what it did for you, what purpose it served, and why it's no longer serving you that purpose. And we can break it up into things like that. And I think knowing all of the details around it and the rituals not only gives me a better idea of what purpose it's serving for you, but it also um allows me other ways to kind of come up with other coping skills that might be, you know, just as effective or more healthy for you. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now there was a follow up on this that said, for me it's the opposite. I know exactly where my self-harm urges come from. It's triggered by abuse and flashbacks and body memories that make me feel like I'm being abused again. I need to feel like I'm in control that I get to decide the type and level of pain I want to feel in my own body. It makes me feel like I'm the one who decides. It makes me feel less power, uh, less powerless and helps me release the anger caused by the abuse. I haven't used self-harm in about two years now, but the temptation is always there. Any advice to help me feel that I'm in control of my body after intense flashbacks? I think movement is going to be really helpful for you because you talked a lot about like the pain that you feel and the anger that's still brewing. I'm curious if you're in therapy, because I feel like a lot of this needs to be processed in therapy and talked through. But I think movement could be really helpful, especially with the body memories and flashbacks. Uh, Somatic experiencing is really powerful. And one thing that you can do is to take, I mean, there's a lot of different ways, but a lot of somatic experiencing is like to help us get back in our bodies, because this out of control powerlessness is that when we're disconnected from our bodies, we aren't in control of it. And I think that kind of dissociation that comes along with trauma a lot of times perpetuates that feeling. And so my advice would be to get back in therapy if you're not already, Uh, talk to them about this disconnection. Tell them that You know, tell them why your self injury served its purpose. Tell them what you told me and say you would like to practice some, you know, more mindfulness techniques and somatic experiencing. You've heard good things about it. I think that there could be a lot in there to assist. And like one of the first things that you're going to do as a homework for somatic experiencing is to, you know, take a shower. And as the water hits your head and comes down your body, like just recognizing where it's touching, that's my head and my scalp. Oh, it's running down my face. I can feel it across my nose. I feel it down my shoulders onto my elbows out my fingertips. I know it sounds very very detailed and slow. It's just like 10 minutes they say. So but it helps us at least acknowledge the different parts and feel the water as it hits us. Now we can skip over some super triggering parts of our bodies at the beginning, but I want you to at least try to notice the sensations of the warmth, as the water cold, um you know, is the how's the water pressure? Uh, you know, and again, some of that might have to come along with grounding techniques if the dissociation is really strong. That urge to pull out, you know, we're like, ah, I can't. Um, but all that again can be talked through with a therapist, and even like those full body shakes could be helpful for you and that releasing of that like pent up energy. Um, yeah, and then I find even. It sounds silly, but I find yoga to be really helpful with my patients. It's been really healing for me personally, just to be in touch with my body and thank it for what it's doing and kind of challenging it to like twist and hold different poses. It can help you feel in your body and more in control of it. Like I'm choosing to do this right now. And that's actually something that's good for you. Not, I'm not saying push yourself to your hurt, but being aware that you get to decide how far you go in this pose and how long you hold it. Because yoga is all about like, come out early if you need to, put your knee down if it's hard. And that could be really helpful for you too. So those are just some of my thoughts. Okay, let's move on to question seven. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk more about healthy boundaries? Of course, I've always struggled with establishing them and I'm working on it now. However, I feel like my new boundaries are too strict and I'm now living by some set of rules that controls my life instead of me controlling the boundaries. I've heard that healthy ones are supposed to be flexible and not rigid, but how do I know if I'm being flexible or overstepping my boundaries? I hope it makes sense. Thanks so much for all that you do. Of course, and yes, that makes so much sense. The truth about healthy boundaries are that for the most part, they can be felt. And so my challenge or my homework for you is to start paying attention to how you feel in situations. Like example I always give, because this is one that is not okay with me. I do not like someone coming up from behind me and touching me when I don't know them or I am not expecting it. I mean, if it's Sean and we're like at, at a restaurant, I know he's, he, I know he's coming up behind me. It's fine. But even that can startle me sometimes if I don't, if if I, like he went to the bathroom and I don't know he's back yet, right? I will, I will physically respond when a, a, it's usually a dude will come up behind me and put his hand on my back to get around me. Excuse me, miss, or something. Hate it. Don't like it. That's a boundary that has been crossed. And that sensation or that discomfort that I feel is my body's response to that crossing of the boundary. And so, I just start paying attention. Another example or way to know boundaries crossed is are we irritated by someone? Like is someone calling us a lot or expecting something for them? Do we dread talking to someone, reaching out? That's because they overstep boundaries. And so I want you to just start paying attention to that feeling because our body tells us all the information we need to know in order to have healthy boundaries because again they're not like these rigid things like uh I wouldn't say that tell, that not wanting to talk to someone is a healthy boundary that is like a rule that's like a thing we're just not going to do a boundary is I'm not going to allow someone to talk badly about me or my family so let's say we have another friend that's like oh You always do that and you're just so annoying. We can be like, you know what? That's not okay. And that's when we can say that to them or we can remove ourselves and be like, if you can't speak nicely about, you know, me or people in my life, I don't think we can be friends anymore. You know, though, like that's how it works. And I know you can feel like, well, maybe that's rigid. No, that's just, that's the boundary. That's the line. Boundaries are flexible when it comes to things like, well, if a friend is talking to you, like, what you would say like, oh, they're not talking nicely about you, but it's constructive criticism where they're like, hey, you know, you didn't show up for me and that really hurt my feelings. Like, yeah, that can be hard to hear. And yeah, we can be kind of defensive maybe, but that is not, that's where it's like, there's a flexibility when it comes to someone holding us accountable, right? So all in all, I always tell people to start noticing relationships where you um, feel uncomfortable a lot, You feel put down. You dread talking to them, or you dread getting back to them. When you see their name pop up on your phone in an email or text, you're like, you like don't want to deal with it. It could even cause you to like, yeah, I don't know, uh, decompensate. You could want to self injure, or drink, or do any number of things to try to just like ignore that they're there. Pay attention to those sensations. Those are your bo- it's your body's way of telling you that a boundary is crossed with that person or something's not appropriate and so then just be curious what is it that they do that we don't like or why is it that we're dreading this is it because it maybe it's an abusive relationship is it because you know it's very toxic for us like what is it they never respect our boundaries in general could be that um, but just take your time and hopefully that helps now there was a comment on this that says yes this exactly as an add-on, how do you stay firm with your boundaries when people guilt trip you and make you feel so bad that you end up giving in and you don't want to be selfish? Thank you. Great question. If someone keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, the best way is to actually remove yourself from that situation. Now, I know that that's hard. And those of us who struggle with boundaries tend to be paired up in life with people who um take advantage of that until we get our like our own shit under control, we tend to attract those people. It's almost like empaths attracting narcissists, people with no boundaries attract people who don't like to have boundaries, which could be narcissists also. Um, But the I mean, my gut reaction, like my almost non-therapist Katie, but also th- my therapist brain that I wouldn't say out loud with a patient is that's not a good relationship. If someone's going to guilt trip you, that's potentially a toxic relationship or a narcissist. And I'd encourage you to like not be around that person. If people in your life don't respect when you're like, you know what, I'm not going to drink tonight. And they're like, come on, come on, come on, come on. I know when you're young, you know, peer pressure, people can do shit like that. Those aren't people you want to be around. If you tell someone, no, if you tell someone, I don't want to, I'm tired, maybe next time. And I know a friend might push, right? A friend will be like, but I never see you. Can't we stay out a little bit later? You can be like, I would love to, but let's just make plans for next time. When are you free next? And then you go. And then a friend will be like, okay, cool. You know, I just want to see you more. But someone who's not respectful is going to push and push and push and push. And then the people pleaser in us is going to be like, fine. And we give in. And then we haven't been respectful to ourselves. And so notice if your relationships are like that a lot and, you know, possibly distance yourself or maybe we need to more clearly communicate things. Maybe we need to find a better way. Like if like I have some friends that are great at this, that like in the situation where you're out and you want to go home because you have to work in the morning or whatever, um, I have friends that are so good at communicating a boundary that they it's like nobody ever gives them shit. And so what they do is they stand up and get their things and they say, you guys, I'd love to hang, but I have work in the morning. People be like, no. And they're like, I know it's such a bummer. Work sucks. Okay. I love you guys. I'll see you later. Bye. And they just leave. Like they don't even, there's no time. There's no time for guilt tripping. They remove themselves quickly and expeditiously. Explain why and out they go. Um, and so maybe it could be practicing some of those quicker escapes as well, if that's kind of what we're talking about. Sorry, I've got pod nose it itches when I talk. Um, yeah, and we can brainstorm some others if that's not what you're talking about. But that that's my advice with that. And it's not you being selfish. People who guilt trip, like, They only know how to manipulate. Guilt tripping is manipulation, by the way. And people who get us to do things only through guilt aren't people that we actually want relationships with. Those are people that force the relationship upon us and we have the right to remove ourselves, right? Like, do we want to do things for someone only because we feel like we have to? I don't. Okay. There was another comment that said, how do you set boundaries in the least offensive way possible? How do you know if you're setting unreasonable boundaries or if the person is actually just toxic for you and is best out of your life anyway? I feel like every time I try to set a boundary with my family, they think I'm being disrespectful. You know? Last time I tried to set boundaries with my sister who, considered, who I consider my best friend basically um, cut me out of her life. It's quite upsetting. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. So The best way to set boundaries in like the least offensive way is to just clear, clearly communicate. And that means that like, like I said, um, you know, I don't like, I don't like when you talk down to me. It makes me feel bad. And, and then I don't want to see you as much. And that sucks. Like it's just being clear to the point and talking about like why, like, and then that sucks, you know? And if someone gets reactive to it, if someone's like, oh, you talk shit to me all the time and be like, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I didn't realize I was doing it. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'll make a point to not do. So we're able, we're receptive to their feedback. I'll make a point to not do that anymore. Okay. Okay. We move on. Right. Um, I find that is a better way to co- to comment and to communicate about this. Also doing it when we're not in an overwhelmed place or it's not super stressful and we have time to talk about it. That's all important too. Um, and if someone is really toxic, they're going to guilt trip, they're going to push, they're going to fight. They're not, they're going to just be all sorts of upset and there won't be any um, talking to them and they won't apologize for their own role in things. Like maybe watch some of my videos about toxic relationships um, because there I've talked about a lot of different things like that. So I think the, the least offensive way is just clear and direct and it's It has to be done when things aren't charged. I know sometimes we don't think about things until it happens, but I encourage you then maybe pop into the bathroom, type a note in your phone and bring it up at another time. Um, Unless you have those things, you know, that come to mind ahead of time and you can talk about it. Um, If it's a family member, maybe they'll come into one of your therapy sessions with you. A lot of my patients have done that over the years. I find that pretty effective. Um, But again, if, if like the fact that you, tried to tell your sister, and then she basically cut you out of her life. That's not very healthy behavior to like have someone tell you that something you're doing is hurtful. And you don't apologize or try to make it right. Or even tell them, hey, they did that thing too. Just cut them out. I don't know. That's, that's pretty, that sounds pretty toxic. But I mean, not, obviously, I don't know the whole story. So I don't want to just, you know, say that it is, but it sounds pretty bad. Um, and if you're setting unreasonable boundaries, consider the flip side. Whenever I'm talking with patients about boundary setting, I always think like, how would you feel if this was if they said this to you? That's a good question. We shouldn't we should think about that. Um that will help you help guide how you communicate it, what you communicate and all that stuff. Okay. Final question, question number 8. Says, "Hi Katie, hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you're doing well." It says, "How can I let go of my perfectionistic attitude and still feel like who I am and what I do is enough. Good question. In today's world, this is even harder as there are so many opportunities for comparison and expectations seem to just increase. I find myself constantly measuring myself against something or someone. I want to do my best to aim high, but I also want to be content with just being me. I know stopping the comparison is a good starting point. It's like you read my mind, but it's hard when others' expectations remain so high. I know if I can sort this out, it could be the single biggest improvement of my mental health. Thank you for all that you do. I just love this question. I struggle with like perfectionism when I was younger. And I guess, I mean, there's a lot to it. Now, the comparison is key. And one thing that I've tried to do, and I'm not, I don't always do this. Okay, when I say I do things, you guys, I'm doing my best just like you. I always want to compare myself to yesterday me. Mm hmm. Am I doing better today than yesterday me? That's the only comparison that I'll allow, okay? So just consider that. And um, if you find being on social media causes you to feel worse about yourself and like you need to work harder, I think it's time to rethink who you follow. Because just like we try to eat a well-balanced diet and eat a variety of fruits and veggies and proteins and whatevers, we need to digest a variety of healthy things on social media, not things that are going to make us feel worse. Now, I want you all to know that that doesn't say anything bad about the person that you unfollow. That says something about you and that's okay. And we can mute people if you think it will be offensive to them if you unfollow. I know people can be very sensitive about social media. It's so silly. But hey, pay attention. And if it's not helpful to you, do not follow them because that's only going to make it worse for you. And again, it's, it's your issue. It's about you. It's not about them. It's about how their life is affecting you because we're struggling with this comparison factor. Okay. So consider that. And the perfectionistic thing is is tough to break, but there are things that we can do to, to move away from it. And first of all, I think part of it is anxiety. Now, I'm just talking personally and professionally, but a lot of my patients and myself included who have uh, struggle with perfectionistic thoughts or actions or just attitude towards life. Um, we have a lot of anxiety and it's that anxiety that fuels the perfectionistic part of us. And so some things that we can do to better manage our anxiety is finding ways to decompress and, and relax. Um, I have thought stopping techniques that I personally use. I There's medication that can be really helpful. I have a lot of friends and family on medication for anxiety um, yoga is like a godsend to me because like the meditation component is really healing and helpful and it forces, cause it's like, it's challenging to know what you're doing, like where the arms are going and you know, how am I twisting, blah, blah, blah. It's hard for me to focus on that and the worry thoughts. Um, I also have a lot of distractions that I'll use to stop. Uh, Roxy's a great one. <laughs> um, yeah, so managing your anxiety, I think is going to be beneficial. And a huge one with perfectionistic attitudes is, yourself talk. I know you hate it. I hate it. It's hard. I know it's it's hard work to not shit talk yourself. I don't know why it's hard, but it's like this muscle that we've built up over time without realizing it. And we have to start queuing in and paying attention because we're like, hey, that's not a very good conversation. And you, you all know that I wouldn't say you have to think positively immediately. We got to use those bridge statements, right? Instead of all of a sudden thinking, I'm amazing and beautiful and everybody loves me. It's okay to think, you know, it's possible I'm not as shitty as I think, maybe. That's a great movement from the shitty thoughts that you're having, right? We talk so nastily to ourselves, and I really believe that that feeds that perfectionism and that urge to be perfect. Because again, that anxiety, man, it's like, we think if we do everything perfect, then it'll like alleviate it. It's almost like part of OCD. Cause I definitely had like a little blip of that type of stuff when I was younger. And I think that was all kind of anxiety driven. The more I've been in therapy and the more I've worked on myself and even doing these videos, like sometimes I feel like I get just as much, if not more out of it than you guys. And so sometimes I like have these epiphanies about my life. I'm like, holy shit. Right. Um, and so just consider. So that's really where I would go with this for right now. I think you're talking trash to yourself, so I want you to pay attention to that. I think we need to be more conscientious about who we follow and what we see online, what we'll allow in our brains, right? Um, and then you know, only comparison is to yesterday you. And I think that's a good place to start. It it's it's a work in progress, one step at a time. But remember my old saying, it's a process, not perfection. Mm. We'll get there. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for leaving reviews and for sharing this podcast. It's really grown over the years and I'm really grateful to each and every one of you because without you, you know, I wouldn't be able to do this. And maybe at some point we'll be able to get a sponsor on the podcast. That would be really cool. But anyway, I love you all. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time. Bye.